Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, Adam here with another great episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. On this week's episode, we talk with Walter Lee, one of the hosts from the Chase and Tales podcast. I've got to say, it was one of the most fun podcasts that we have done to date. Lots and lots of laughs, lots of stories, and a little bit of bow hunting information to go along with it. So if you like what you hear, do us a favor, tell a friend, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and make sure to leave a review in the in the bottom there. And as always, be sure to check out our affiliates, the Bowhunter Box Club, the only subscription box that offers high-quality, useful products for bow hunters delivered monthly right to your door for $40 a month. $40 a month gets you a minimum or $60 to $70 worth of bow hunting equipment that you really want. And then make sure to check out our friends over at Serviceside as well. They offer hunting gear and lifestyle apparel, and they can also be found on YouTube by searching Deer Slayer TV. On YouTube, they offer hunting videos, tips, and gear reviews. And remember to use code CHRONICLES at any of our affiliates to save 10%. Enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, Adam and John here back with the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest. Um, we've got Walt from the Chase and Tales podcast. And uh, let me just tell you, I've been messaging back and forth with Walt probably six months because it was before I even started the podcast. I ran into him over on the Bowhunter Box Club. He, he's running a podcast and it's, you know, hunting centric, um, kind of like exactly what I, what I wanted to be doing. Um, so I've been talking back and forth with him and I, we finally got him on here. So, uh, how you doing tonight, Walt? Dude, I am fantastic. Anytime I get to talk hunting with a couple of like-minded individuals, I'm having a blast, dude. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Like I said, I'm I'm just excited to get to talk to you. But uh, yeah, when I we were it was like introductions on that page or something, and I'm reading through it, and it says, 
you know, my name is Walt. I run the Chasing Tales podcast. Obviously, it it piqued my interest. And then uh, he says, <laughs> you know, my wife just told me, you know, you talk about hunting so much, you might as well start a podcast. And I was like, I, I need to talk to this guy because I think I've had the same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a conversation that uh, just about every hunter probably has. More often than not, our spouses don't uh, share our passion, and that's fine. That leaves us plenty of time in the woods by ourselves. But, uh, yeah, man, it was literally just that organic and simple. Yeah, and I, I would I would just like to say that uh, for any of the uh, the people who are not necessarily on board with the uh, Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, uh, Walt did say why. The first thing he said to me is like, why do you want to do this? I don't know if you should do it. Yes, I did. <laughs> he said it's a lot of it's a lot of work, and uh, you know there's a lot of lot of other ones out there, and uh, we just kind of went back and forth on you know kind of what our our vision was, and uh, he's been been super supportive ever since. So I just want to say thanks, you know, for the motivation and and uh, inspiration, I guess too. So well, well, dude, listen, I I don't. I, I need to give credit where credit's due, and this collaboration between you and I has gone, been going on for about six months now, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, in large part, the audio quality that our guest gets to uh, enjoy on a routine basis now is uh, because of your expertise and your digging. We were going down a, a totally different path with our with our audio upgrade, and uh, you uh, kind of pumped the brakes on that and said, hey man, listen. Uh, maybe you could go about this a little bit smarter way. So, uh, I, I appreciate the kind words, but <laughs> you, you've had about as big an impact on this podcast as anybody. Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, talking to people that are, that are actually doing it and, you know, there's so many people out there that want to just say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Or you just want to be famous or, or <laughs> this or that, you know, yeah, but we've heard uh, that one before. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, yeah. Enough, uh, Enough patting on the back. Uh, for, <laughs> for, We're done with that. For for anybody who hasn't uh, heard your podcast, tell us a little bit about it because it's not you know we we here are you know completely centered around uh, bow hunting and uh, that's that's really our passion. But you guys are just a little bit different than that, huh? Yeah, we we try and fit a niche that I I, I think uh, is missing in the American hunting culture, and and that is when I grew up and. Everybody can relate to this, and, and you've listened to the podcast. You've heard me say this before. I apologize to, to say it again, but it used to be you you met somebody cool, and uh, you said, "Oh, you hunt," and the guy digs out his his binder full of photos out of his center console in his truck. He's like, "Yeah, man," and on such and such date, I was with such and such, and I shot this, you know, eight point buck, and you know, it, it was less about the score and and, and less about. Um, how you know maybe the purity of of did you use a bow did you use a gun and they were just we're kind of missing out on some really fundamental conversations and what I mean by that is you know we used to sit around the campfire and have some conversations and just talk hunting you know just just share some awesome uh, time and uh, experience with other people I mean that's where mentorships began you know I I know that there are plenty of old men who felt me out at the campfire while they were sipping on bourbon I had a coke cola in my hand and. They did. They were determining whether or not they were going to take me turkey hunting one day, and <laughs> you know, I just kind of wanted to recreate that atmosphere and 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 get away from all the commercialization and and just get back to what hunting is, and that's sharing stories. So the 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 concept is buried in the name. It's called Chasing Tales, T A L E S, 
outdoors and 90% of what we do is just share stories. Now that has evolved some and we've had folks who have wanted more technical knowledge. Um, I don't know why, because we're not particularly successful individuals ourselves, probably because our, our guests are, are so uh, flush with information. So we try and share that knowledge the same way you would have at the campfire. And you would have asked that old fellow, Hey man, how'd you kill that buck? And he would have gave you a nugget here and there throughout the story as to what, what he did to make it special. And so we try and hide and embed in, uh, critical details of the story and strategies right there in the hunt. But that's what we do. Me and my co-host Layton, who couldn't make it tonight, it's his busy season, but at work, he uh, we, we just get on there and we talk to some people and share some awesome stories and hope people uh, want to tune in. Yeah, and that's uh, T-A-L-E-S because the Chase and Tail podcast, that was uh, in his younger days and it was completely different. <laughs> oh, was there another one? <laughs> chasing those women. Oh, the other I get tails. It. My bad. No, <laughs> no, Leighton's still chasing that, that kind of tail, man. <laughs> so you know, with us being uh, bow hunting centric, uh, what uh, what are you shooting? What's your setup? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm primarily a bow centric person myself, which is I think one of the threads that that uh, unites both you, me, and John, and. Um, I'm currently shooting a Athens Revelation 7. It's a 32-inch axle-to-axle bow. Um, IBO on its 340, but I'm shooting 60 pounds at 20, 28 inches. Uh, that's probably going to get shortened up a little bit here. I've been having some problems with my draw length, but uh, primarily it's 28 inches and has been for a while. I've got a dead center front and back bar on that. It's an 8.6 system with the quick disconnects. And we are running HHA single pin sliders right now. I've got the uh, HHA, uh, I think it's the Optimizer light, uh, light, which is just the condensed uh, non-dovetail version and a .10 reticle. And I'm currently slinging Rampage 300 spine uh, Black Eagle arrows with the 50 grain outsert and 125 grain uh, broadheads, which for this season had yet to be determined. Um, my, re- my release is currently a stand element. And I think we're going to discuss that a little bit later on. Um, and that, that joker's sweet, but that's my current rig, uh, at the moment that is subject to change as the season goes on though. So I don't, the reason I asked you is I, I don't know too much about the, the Athens bows. So what, what made you, uh, choose them or, or, or go that route? I've heard a lot of good things, but, um, it's just not something that's real big around here at all. Yeah, I don't even think, is there any shops around here that carry? Not that I know of. Yeah, uh, so there should be a couple in your state. I looked that up ahead of time. I can't remember where precisely. I'm not as familiar with y'all. But um, the the reason is simple. Um, They had a great reputation, and they were looking for factory shooters. I had just gotten uh, out of a bad relationship with an obsession bow. Um, Sorry to those that that might piss off, but uh, that did not go swimmingly and, uh, I was looking for a good opportunity and they offered me a, a factory staff position, which, you know, uh, I was willing to go in and, and, uh, give the bow a try. And, uh, my buddy and I both in Florida went in on it and so far it's living up to the hype, man. Um, it's a solid bow. It's not, it doesn't have all the cutouts and the fancy detail work that you pay for when you buy a Matthews or a Hoyt. Um, but it is a forgiving, fast, um, particularly for me the the impressive part is it's quiet and by quiet everybody says it's quiet i'm saying you got to go back to the matthew switchback xt 
to get to the same level of quiet. I mean, the Joker just, it's like a whisper when it goes off. There's no thunk. There's no thwang. Uh, I have no, you know, string dampeners on it or anything like that. And I'm not shooting a particularly heavy arrow. I think my arrow comes out to about 405 grains. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not lugging a meat missile down range that's absorbing a bunch of the energy. It's just a, it's a really solid performing bow and I'm, I'm quite pleased with it. That's a, a pretty heavy arrow. That's probably because you're shooting such a, you know, the, the lesser draw weight and in length there, or how'd you end up with yeah, 175 that, grains up front? Well, that came from about, uh, 2016. I shot a very decent buck, um, Honestly, I'm probably doing a disservice by saying it was decent. It was a very, very good buck. Um, the night before, I had a 140-inch buck easily. Every bit of 140 inches come by 10 yards under the stand. As a matter of fact, I grunted them in from the field. And uh, I didn't get a shot on them because it was too dark. I lost daylight too quick. And I hunt primarily swamp bottoms down here. Um, I don't know if that's something you want to get into later. But my 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 focus is close-range swamp bottoms, places people don't want to go, that there's a lot of mosquitoes and ticks and other things that bite you and i set back up the next day and the 140 inch buck came blasting by just before uh, shooting light and behind him was a was a good 115 inch uh buck behind him and uh i'll be frank with you fellas i haven't shot one over 100 inches so he was he was going to get a an arrow and i shot clipped the front shoulder blade got about six inches of penetration and tracked that deer for a country mile uh, before finally we, we came to a clearing in the, in the woods and he was, he was limping across the other side, grazing on, on acorns. So I know I got trail cam photos of that deer afterwards. I know he survived, but, uh, that, uh, messed me up pretty bad mentally, not getting the penetration, having put all that uh, energy and time into it. And I take hunting very serious. I mean, I'm taking the life of an animal and I kind of vowed that I'd have a, uh, arrow with some high FOC with a fixed, uh, fixed, uh, blade broadhead on the front so that if I ever did clip that bone again by accident that uh, I might, you know, stand a better chance of getting some penetration. You know, maybe I only get one lung or I clip clip an artery because I don't get full penetration, but I'll be damned if I'm going to, you know, have that happen again. Yeah, that's, I mean, that makes total sense. But like I said, it was just, you know, for shooting, shooting 50 pounds and, and all of that. I mean, I always think 60, very shooting 60 pounds. 50 or 60? Oh, I, I, the, I was shooting I'm shooting uh, 50 right now because I swapped from going from right hand to left hand. But uh, when that happened, I was shooting 60, and I plan on being back to 60 by the end of this uh, summer. So that's that'll be where I'm at. Since the 125-green Thunderhead, I think everything that I've shot, and that's going back <laughs> 10 years, is, is, is worth 100 grains. So. Right. There's just a better – I mean, there's a, a bigger selection of the 100-green. Like, I switched over – uh, the arrows I shot last year, I had the full 75 grain brass insert with the Eastern axis. So trying to get that, you know, FOC, like you're saying. Yeah. You're, you're talking about the, the swamp bottoms and, and, uh, all the places that people don't want to go. And you talked a little bit about the, the campfire, um, aspect of, of hunting. Um, is that how you were brought up hunting in those types of areas or is that evolved into, you know, where you had to go or you know, where you were finding the sign? Um, it, it's kind of been an evolution. Um, I grew up on a, on a, well, the, the latter part of my childhood, I grew up, uh, when I started, <clears throat> when I started my hunting, I started on about a 1400 acre track of pine flats, um, which down here in the South for any of your Northern listeners, um, if they haven't experienced it, you know, most of, of your Southeast is heavily logged 
and it's rows and rows of pine tree and there, there's a lack of diversity there's a lack of topography there's a lack of any real um identifying features to the land everything is basically one big monoculture of slash pines with a palmetto mulberry un, uh, undergrowth so um I was forced to kind of alter my focus because I'm a bow hunter. I'm bow centric. I also believe in getting them close. You know, if I wanted to shoot something at 60, 50, 60 yards, I'd just use a rifle. You know, I wanted to get that animal close. And so what I found were in these pine areas, a deer is going to be funneled to an area regardless of extreme or obvious uh, topography. You know, everything that I read in Field and Stream and Outdoor Life didn't apply to me. Uh, it ever, um, unless you were squirrel hunting or rabbit hunting, it didn't apply to me. Nothing deer hunting related applied to me. So I literally had to go out there with a real fresh perspective of saying, okay, I have got a resource here to, to utilize that does not provide me, uh, the ability to rely on other people's wisdom. And most men, when I was growing up, bow hunting was laughed at still in my area. That was something that you did. If you had a whole lot of money and you had bought all the tools and all the goodies that you ever wanted, <laughs> you bow hunted because, or you bought a bow and you occasionally sat in a stand just because that's just what you did. You know, you, you had the money to afford a $700 bear bow and that's what you did. <laughs> um, so I, I started out bow hunting in an area where uh, most openings are hundreds of yards long where the deer could step out at any point in time and it was made for a rifle hunter. So I had to look at the features uh, Will Primos uh, talks about uh, on one of his podcasts not too long back talking about how uh, a hill for us or like a, a rise for us is a couple feet and and it's true. So I started looking at the land and saying, okay, well if all these pines are the same, what's a what's an obvious natural funnel for these for these animals, a transition zone for these animals? And for me, it happened to be uh, Tupelo swamp bottoms or these these thick watery areas that uh, the the big heavy machinery would get stuck. So they clear-cut it the first time to get the cypress and the hardwoods out of there, and then they said, to hell with it, we're not planting it with pines. Well, what you end up having is a, a, a heavy transition zone there. You have a you have a, a, a thick mulberry palmetto pine line, and then you have this really thick um, pin oak, red oak type uh, brushy area that, that, that holds water in, 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 in wet seasons. And I noticed and I found for the first time consistent trails during that time where deer were coming in and out of there. It then evolved past that to where I found oak flats that had palmetto flats, thick, dense palmetto flats as far as you could see. And I'm talking the kind that you're just going to make a, a, a hell of a ruckus trying to get through. And I realized that deer would, would skirt that. On top of that, I kind of touched on this uh, sarcastically earlier when I said I hunt the places where everything bites you. A lot of a lot of fellas don't want to hunt those spots. So I'm sharing 1,400 acres with probably 20 other hunters who all have rifles who have their setups to where they can see a couple hundred yards in any direction. Well, it doesn't take long before a lot of your setups and a lot of these places get claimed. And I had to get kind of resourceful. And it just so found out that it, it just so came to be that I was able to pattern these deer in these swamp bottoms. It's thick, so they're up close and personal. And uh, you can find heavily used trails that they routinely use, which was very unlike a lot of those other areas so that that's kind of how uh that transition came to be my father um was a waterfowl hunter and that's actually where the inspiration came we were back there hunting ducks one time in one of these swamps and i started noticing the trails and all the deer activity in the middle of the day and i was like okay all right there's something to this and i that's 
I just basically took off with it and ran. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is that at what point in your your hunting um, lifeline or whatever did that come about? Because, like, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, it's like I grew up, you know, ladder stand, bait pile, same spot every day and hope something comes by. There's a lot of hoping, not a lot of hunting, I think. <laughs> or a lot of old, just we sit here, this is going to be your tree stand, go yep. out there. Am I am I correct that you're asking when did I make that trend? When did I hit that point in life? Yeah, I mean, so like the 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 first time I ever hunted, you know, was was basically that was here's a here's a tree, uh, we're gonna put out some carrots and and this is what we're gonna do, and from twelve years old until you know I was twenty, that was basically just what I did because that's the way that we hunted and it was mostly rifle hunting. I mean, I started out bow hunting, but it it was much different than the hunting or the, the way that I view hunting and deer, deer movement, everything now. Uh, but you know, there's, there's some guys in, and also like with the advent of all of the, um, information that's readily available now, I mean, there is a lot of secrecy where we're not going to share your stories. We're not going to help you out. We're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to, yeah. we're not going to do anything, but realistically, there's a lot of guys out there that are you know, if you were getting into hunting right now, there's a ton of information out there that would lead you right to the spots that, uh, that you, you had stumbled upon or, or kind of what you're, what you're doing now. So I was just curious if, if it was, you know, from day one, you know, your family viewed hunting as, you know, we're, we're looking at deer movement. We're looking at the, this types of sign, or it sounds like maybe it was, well, if we sit here, we can see further <laughs> type thing. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a it was a very brisk evolution for me. When I when I was coming up, the way that you hunted was, uh, hell, my dad said it to the day, well, to to this day rather. But he, if you sit there long enough, deer is going to come by. Walt, just you just got to put your time in the stand and the and and the method methodology. We couldn't bait, so what you did is you found food sources. You found an oak, and you're like, okay, well, this oak's got acorns under it, and eventually you're going to find a deer will come by if you put in enough hours there. And, uh, you know, p- put your time in. And, and from there, that was my introduction into to big game hunting. I'd say probably about the age of 12. It wasn't until about 16 when I when I really started. I met my uh, pseudo grandfather and, and, and archery mentor. It's when I fell in, in love with archery that I realized that sitting on a power line with a with a high powered rifle, hoping that a deer walked out uh, with no you know, there was no study of animal behavior other than they like to eat this kind of stuff. So we'll sit here until something that wants to eat, it comes by during shooting light. And it, it once, once I started getting into bow hunting, that's when I started to, to really dive into animal behavior. But, you know, even then, be honest with you, you know, you say that there's a lot of resources out there. If you go to Southeast Georgia, I'll plop you down to Southeast Georgia. There's not many resources that cover the unique terrain genetics and, and breeding cycle of those deer. I mean, uh, late September, our, our rut is over in Southeast Georgia. Late September, early October. I mean, you're still looking at ninety-something degree weather. Well, that's probably why it's not on the list of big buck states and destination <laughs> hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you, when you talk about South Georgia and North Florida and stuff, it just you don't really think about deer hunting. I mean, no, I think I, I never really. I when I think of Florida, I think of saltwater fishing or bass fishing. <laughs> I think of t- uh, turkeys and uh, hogs. Yeah, turkeys and hogs. Yeah. So when you 
when you uh when you started hunting with a bow so were you just were you was that just you or you did you hunt with your grandpa then well um to just to back you up just a touch uh, south georgia south to middle georgia is an absolute hotbed for big bucks uh, there are more there are more Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett bucks pulled out of South Georgia, out of the state of Georgia, than any other southeastern state, including Kentucky. Um, it, there there is incredible genetics that were brought into that area, and incredible food resources, uh, incredibly fertile ground in that area. So um, I'm not saying you need to, that South Georgia is a, a destination area. Uh, the other thing I'd say is a lot of people down here are very secretive about what they shoot. I could probably take you to five different men's houses that have got over 150 inch deer and probably a dozen of them on the wall, and they just don't tell anybody. Um, so well, they're doing a good George, job. George has definitely got some big deer, <laughs> huh? They're doing a good job at keeping it secret, then. So we just let the cat yeah, out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um. There's a lot of jealousy down here. A lot of competition, man. Um, I, I've had leases pulled right out from under me because I, somebody found out I had a big deer on camera and they outbid me. So it's one of those things. It's a different culture down here than a lot of Midwestern states. Um, a lot of places that you hear about big bucks. I'm not saying we compare to Iowa or Missouri or anything like that, but there's definitely big bucks in South Georgia. I'd hunt South Georgia public land before I'd hit uh, Florida public land any day of the week. Um, but you asked me about my, my evolution into archery. That it, I met my, my mentor, and he was from, from South Carol- uh, Southern California. Um, he was the grandfather of my best friend and, and he really turned into a, a life mentor and a, and a bow hunting mentor myself. He had a, I used to sit in his, what he called the dog house. And that was a, pl- that was a converted garage out back that all the old men sat there and, and drank uh, Budweiser and smoked, uh, either cigarettes or some kind of, you know, cheap cigar and, you know, harped about the good old days. And Mr. Griffin took a hell of a liking to me and he, he showed me a bow that he had a recurve up on the wall. And he's, and I had shot maybe three or four deer the last season and, and I just kind of didn't have the same passion for it. I was using raffle that season. And he said, what you need to do is get you one of those and, and, and get after, and that'll be a hell of a challenge for you. And I said, what you mean? And I look up on the wall and there's this old dusty recurve and a leather quiver chock full of freaking arrows, man. I'm talking cedar arrows, some old school, and I'm talking old school, early day aluminum arrows. And, uh, all the cedar arrows had been hand painted and he got it down and he showed them all to me. And he's like, you need to get you one of these or these recurves and really chase after them. That, that, that'll be a hell of a challenge for you. So, um, I was already kind of burned out a little bit on take, taking a firearm. Um, I didn't like the idea. It didn't really feel super sporting to me that I was setting up on a 300 yard, uh, path to hunt deer. And when he gave me that challenge, dude, that I bought, I saved every penny I could for about six months. I bought myself a Fred bear recurve. It was a, a a takedown composite modern version with these like fiberglass limbs and aluminum riser, and uh, that thing whooped my ass for about two summers long. Oh, I don't know if I was supposed to cuss. Am I allowed to cuss on this podcast? Oh yeah, you, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> okay, all right, cool. I just wanted to be respectful to your platform. Um, it, it whooped my fanny for about two seasons. And he laughed and laughed and laughed, and he'd give me tips and, and, and tricks and stuff. But he wasn't much of a hunter himself. He had kind of gotten out of that. He was uh, older in age and didn't quite – he had some mental conditions and just couldn't quite get out there. And um, he kept kept mentoring me and pushing me and pushing me. And finally, he looked at me one day and said, son, you need to buy a compound. You can't shoot this bow for, for <laughs> shit. And I laughed. <laughs> I laughed and uh, finally went and bought myself a, a Hoyt. I think it was like a ZR200 or something like that. 
is what it was called, a Hoyt. I don't remember. It was some god awful like forty one inch axle axle bow I bought off of eBay, and I hunted with that thing for many years, man. So it was a it was a tra- it was a transition largely be- because of my mentor, but also in, in I wanted more hunting season, man. You know, I I got a, I got a month and a half, two months with a with a gun, and I looked in the rec books, I was like, damn, I get another month and a half of a bow hunt. Psh, count me in, man. <laughs> yeah, I think that that whole mentoring thing is, uh, I mean, that's gotta be like what you grew up with. Right, John. I mean, I grew up, yeah, my dad was, he was a bow hunting free. Well, he was a hunting machine. So it didn't matter what, what season, you know, or what, what weapon you're using. He was out there. So, and he, the archery thing, I mean, he's just a kill machine, you know I mean? Yeah. And like, so Frank, he had, you know, similar situation if you listen to some of like our first ones where you know the guy that that uh that helped him out i mean there's cedar arrows in hanging up there in his his room when you walk in and the guy was fred bear's hunting partner i mean so that's uh (laughs) yeah he met him at wow through through springs yeah sporting is like well frank my uncle uh he met my dad obviously you know through my mom and and pretty much got him into my dad got frank into you know helped getting him into archery and hunting and all that so then then frank went on to work at the local sporting goods store and evolved from there but yeah and and so you know that that john was always exposed to that and and like we we discussed you know my dad uh he bow hunted but it wasn't like bow hunting was not life you know it was it was another reason another uh time to get in the woods and you know, whatever. But I guess I'm like you in the sense where I want to just, I want everybody to bow hunt. I want everybody to, to hunt. And I've told my friends that, you know, forever and ever. And again, I'm not any sort of expert or anything, but I mean, if you were to like, again, look around the garage right here, there's six or seven bows hanging in here. Like when you go to Frank's there, it's like Cabela's with stands and everything like that. So I would always, (laughs) I'd always tell my friends, you know, if, if anybody wants to hunt, let me know and I'll, I'll take you out, you know, and nobody yeah. ever took me up on it except for I had one friend who was this, I don't know. He, I mean, he's, he's like a hippie. He lives out in uh, California now and just the freest spirit that you've ever seen. But he grew up around here and he hunted with his uncles and he'd, you know, he'd kill the deer before I think with a rifle or, or, or something. But he's like, yeah, I got a bow. I'd love to go. And he brings over this ragtag bow, kind of like what you're kind of outlining the compound that you bought and uh it's got ten dollar sight on it it's all messed up and mismatched arrows and everything and we just brought it into the oh, garage yeah. and said all right you're gonna we're gonna take this site actually we didn't even let him use that bow we took chris's old uh, frank's son his old bow and uh set it up for him and got him shooting and funny story about that is we hunt with climbers and um it was always the loggy bayou climbers and no no hand climber right so you just yeah, hug yeah. The, hug the tree and and go up so um <laughs> i get him and he's he's looking at me and he's like yeah i can do that frank's in the house and we're out there farting around with a stand and uh this guy's name's copeland he he climbs up and he's he's like looking around and he's like i, I think i'm high enough i said no nah, you're high enough and Frank comes out and he goes, what is he doing? And I mean, he was out there climbing for 
10 minutes, you know. And he says, what's going on? He thinks he's high enough. He's like, he's not high enough. He's like, I'm high enough. He's like, how high do you think I am? I said, seven feet. He said, no, no, no. I walked over and grabbed the bottom of the stand. I said, you're seven feet. (laughs) And he goes, "Uh, I guess I'm a little more afraid of heights than I thought I was. (laughs) But I took him out the first weekend of hunting, or uh, I think it was the second weekend of hunting because we'd already tracked a deer that I'd shot. And um, we were talking earlier in the year. We are like, you know, when the deer come in and then all of a sudden they just look up at you, they have that like alert look and they just automatically look up at you. I feel like every, every hunter's seen that, you know, and he says, deer, don't do that. Deer, don't do that. And, uh, so we were hunting, (laughs) we were hunting, it was a Sunday and, uh, I, he had the stand on his back, bow in his hand. And I told him, just go down there to the bottom of the hill. There's a little ridge, find a tree. Well, he farted around down there until it got just getting light, climbs up a tree. His phone is in his pocket going off. He couldn't figure out why someone was talking on a loudspeaker right as the sun was coming up and it was his phone. The radio was playing. His pocket was really hot. He's looking around his bow rope that I told him to bring was, uh, the yellow braided rope. And, uh, he, he lifts his, lifts his bow up and just gets it unhooked. And there's a deer standing there and he's like, Oh my goodness. He doesn't have an arrow knocked or anything. Finally gets the arrow <laughs> knocked, gets his release on. He's getting ready to, to draw back and the deer does the look up at him thing. And like he had the presence of mind to stop and think they really do do that, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but he ended up shooting that deer, and my dad was coming back, leaving for church, and uh, Copeland was just standing there, and they went and tracked it, and he shot his first deer right there. So the the mentoring thing, you know, I can't imagine a guy with that much experience and that much, that many years taking you under his wing, like at whatever age. You know, this is this is one of my buddies who. I'm just trying to get him into it, but I, I, it was like my kid just shot a deer. I, I could have been a, a, you know, if I would have shot this big, huge eight point or, or something like that. I mean, you were that excited. I was that excited for him. Right. You know, and it was like validation of like, you could do it too. Like anybody could, could do this, uh, this bow hunt thing. So sorry. I got in on your, uh, got in on your story there. But. No. No, you're good, man. My mentor was the same way, man. He he was the old school, so you know he didn't get super super worked up about anything. I think you could have handed that man a a winning lotto lotto ticket, and he would have just grinned and said "Wow" or something. You know, he was just he was really reserved, and I'll never forget, man. I I got very proficient with that bow, and I was killing many deer a year. And and you know, I, I mentioned before those old fellas. Uh, that were there that would always laugh at me and say, oh, well, you're never going to kill anything with that, or it was a novelty item to go bow hunting. For years and years and years, they were right. I didn't kill shit with that bow. I, I, I scared more deer. I drew back on deer, and had to, I learned the, the tough lesson of maybe drawing 70 pounds if you can't do it slowly is <laughs> is not a good option. But, man, he, he kept investing the time in me and kept teaching me patience and you know the thing is my mentor taught me more than just how to hunt i mean he taught me how to be a good woodsman he taught me how to be a good man and 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 patience is part of that he used hunting as a tool to teach me patient patience um i kind of had a, a, a troubled upbringing and, and he really caught me at the right time and uh straightened that course out for me and I, i'll never forget it man I, I shot four deer in bow season back-to-back years 
and he ribbed me while I'm skinning those deer. He'd sit there and, and drink a beer and, and, and talk to me while I cleaned the deer out. And he, he can he always come up and poke me in the side with his elbow and go, you know, so much for those old farts that said you wouldn't shoot anything, huh? <laughs> and we just laugh and laugh, you know, and it was just such a good camaraderie. And then one year he called me and said, Hey man, you're not going to be happy with what just happened. I said, what you mean? He said, well, uh, I think jealousy just got the best of the other members down here. And I was like, oh, no, what happened? Well, come to find out, they got a little jealous of the man who couldn't kill any deer. He was killing so many deer so early during bow season that they came up with special club rules that said you could only kill one deer a year with your bow. <laughs> and he and he started laughing and said, I guess it's time for you to move on from this place. They, 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 they don't like your kind around here. And I said, my kind? He goes, yeah, the killing kind. And I started <laughs> laughing, man. It was... It was it was just such a cool dynamic to have that mentor, man, and you're right. There there's so many experiences that you share that are just full of elation and happiness, man. Well, and I think, you know, for me, that's one of the things and for John, you know, when we talked about doing this podcast, it's it's not about anything other than that. You know, we, we have the same thing. You know, up here there's a lot of a lot of jealousy, a lot of secret I mean, in the deer around here are, are it's getting better. I mean, they they've have the um, antler point restrictions. And there's getting more and more big deer, but nobody wants to, you know, they, they don't want, yeah, we, I hunt too. Like where? Oh, yeah. In the woods. Wherever. Yeah. yeah for woods. Christ's sake, don't mention where you hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, <laughs> yeah. We made that mistake before, so we won't go down that road. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's like, I just want to be able to, to share all the information and, and just, just, share the camaraderie create this right here that we've you know created from 1600 miles away right. or whatever and, and can sit and share yeah. stories and, and talk talk about hunting and and that's you know that's what this is but we, we're talking all of this about uh but deer about deer hunting you're right now in the middle of your your turkey season and so are we are you about to turn that corner from the guy that can't kill shit with the turkeys <sighs> Jesus, Lord, I hope so, man. This is this has been the longest road. This has been harder than deer hunting, man. I, this is my eighth season for y'all who aren't familiar. Uh, my eighth season ter- chasing turkeys. I'll say this is my sixth season. See, mm, this is my sixth season. Say that three times fast. Uh, where I've chased them with any direction and, and focus, and actually taken instruction from folks. The first uh, two years. Um, I, I just didn't listen to folks and I, I just kind of went out there and did what I thought I saw on TV and, uh, it didn't work out for me. So the last six years I have been chasing after turkeys hard. Uh, I've had many an opportunity. I've put three people on their first turkey, but <laughs> I have yet to, uh, pull the trigger myself. And this weekend is the, it is the coup de gras of the Florida, of the Florida season month, my friends. I've got two days to make this shit happen. <laughs> So are you uh, you hunting with a gun or with a bow? Oh hellfire, no man! I'm I'm hunting with a gun at this point. <laughs> at this point, uh, <laughs> anything legal, which is a bearded animal, it is going to be flopping. I don't care if it's a freaking Jake, dude. I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna hammer the first legal bird that walks out in front of me. Matter of fact, last weekend I dang near uh, sealed the deal on on a, on a, a young Jake. It was. <laughs> I heard him gobble and thought, "Oh man, that's a young bird," and I just did not care, dude. I set up and we 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 played a, a a chess match. It was a beautiful dance, and and he just he he had a hens with him or something. It wouldn't come out of the thicket, and uh, no matter what I did, I, I 
doubled down the road and cut back in after him and uh just couldn't couldn't get, quite get him to come out of the the woods man but these birds get hunted so damned hard man i adam i think i told you on the phone the other day i've got there's two major things wrong with Florida. One, they they firmly believe that every ax, every chunk of woods needs to be ax, accessible by any hunter. And what I mean by that is there are no gates that stop that lock off uh, a four or five hundred acre block from from road access. I mean, you can just drive around these massive squares and enter from any any direction. And opening weekend of turkey season, we hit four pieces of property before I finally got a bird to talk to us. And that first morning. We hit four different pieces of property by 10 o'clock before we got one to talk to us. And on the first piece of property we were on at 1,700 acres uh, in total size, there was not a single chunk of two or 300 acres that didn't have three turkey hunters on there, all just freaking yelping like it's going out of style, guys. I'm talking just, we walked up on one guy, I thought it was a hen, it was about two years ago. I don't know if y'all y'all saw this video. There was a, a a video of a guy in a ground blind, and this hen walks by, and she's just always yelping. Have y'all seen that video? No, I don't no. think so. I'll I'll send that to y'all. It, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. This guy gets his phone out and he starts recording, and and you hear the hen coming off in the distance, and and like forty five seconds later, she walks by the the blind and keeps walking and she's just literally going yelp 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 she never stops ever not once and she goes off into the horizon doing the same thing all of the hunters are doing the exact same thing dude <laughs> and it just makes these birds so call shy it's ridiculous so how close have you been to killing a turkey <sighs> half dozen times and by close i mean like uh 40 yards or closer uh late harvey Three years ago, put me on the biggest time, quote unquote, he's ever seen in his life, uh, at forty-five yards, and I had kind of a, a narrow window to pull the trigger. And evidently, his gun is is missile laser guided and would have hit hit the the narrow window I had to hit uh, to pull the trigger on. I should have, but uh, I wasn't comfortable with the shot, and he was walking out of some brush, and I I assumed that in three steps I'd have a better shot, and uh, I was wrong. So I've, I have buggered at least six different birds. Yeah. I mean, that'll happen. I called in, I think I t- told the story on the, the turkey hunt podcast there with Frank, but I called in just a giant bird for my brother. My brother is like just about clinically deaf and, uh, he didn't hear the birds gobbling on the roost. He didn't hear anything. He's got Frank's BPS three and a half inch, 10 gauge the bird was at 40 yards and he just let him walk by and I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And uh, that's that's one of those things where, you know, he, he wasn't a, a, a turkey hunter. So those turkeys walked by. He thought it was just like deer hunting. We're on the runway. Like, there's going to be more. It's going to be great, you know. But so what is the typical, right. uh, like, turkey hunting down there? I mean, is it everybody just goes in and just calls and calls and calls? I mean, are you roosting these birds? Are you scouting it's probably it's, well, it I'm, different for you for ahead, um, private than it is. I mean, obviously, like up here, public land gets pounded. But if you're on private, you know, you might be able to get on some birds that are a little less uh, less messed with. Yeah, I've I've not been fortunate enough to have private land hunt turkeys on. Um, all of my turkey hunting 
well, that's kind of a lie. I've had a couple opportunities, but I'd say 99.99% of my turkey hunting occurs on public land. Um, turkeys are relatively scarce in this area on public land. They're in small little pockets. Um, and this whole area, unlike for deer, like I told you about in South Georgia, everybody and their damn brother tells anybody who listen where they found turkeys. <laughs> Same thing with ducks, dude. You cannot hide a duck hole down here. I could offer man a, a million dollars and say, listen, don't share what we found today. And he would look at that million dollars, say, okay, shake my hand, walk into the gas station and start telling the bubbles around the coffee machine where he saw those daggum ducks and turkeys. <laughs> so you got to get there really freaking early. You got to get in real tight on those birds, and you got to hope that some other freaking dicky mo doesn't come trousing down the the, the freaking trail because he's scared of the dark. Right about time it's uh, time to pull the trigger, and that happens more often than it freaking should, dude. Man, I, I'm a hothead, so the moment that happens, I just pack my stuff up and leave. I, I just get out the area because with with two firearms involved and my hothead behind, that is not the time to to be taking up <laughs> taking up blows. And it would come to that. So, um, mostly, I'll say this: the majority of our birds are on the rivers. Um, that's not coincidence that I hunt rivers to begin with. But the river bottoms, you know, turkeys like to be over water, um, and with all the pressure that they get, I think they get pushed down out of the pine flats and down into the river bottoms where they feel more secure, especially during turkey season. Our, our turkey season only lasts about a month. Yeah, I mean. Uh... <laughs> It, it's just hard for me to fathom because you had, said, you had said that there were so many turkeys down there, but like up here, I feel like they're just everywhere. And even even the public land that gets hunted pretty hard, I, I don't know if Frank's just that good or, or Frank what. Frank is, he is he's but, an exceptional he is. But I mean, I, I don't ever go out and think, man, I hope I hear a turkey or I hope, I mean, it's just like, I hope I don't mess up or I don't run out of time or, or, or something like that because it's, I've only been turkey hunting for maybe, maybe 10 years or so. I mean, I didn't grow up doing it at all. Um, I called in a bird, uh, for my dad and he killed his first bird maybe five, six years ago. And, uh, it's just been fun because it's an interaction when, when, when they answer back, it's like, or even when you call in a hen and then you can just start messing with them. And just call them back whatever yeah. they're whatever they're doing, but I don't ever go out and and worry about anything like you're talking about. And I feel like they get hunted pretty hard up here too. But it's just maybe there's just not that much. I, well, and I think part of it is we hunt that last season. Yeah, we hunt the last season where that's just open, and yeah. some people stay away from it because birds might be shut down at that point, or they think they're messed with, so they might opt for the early seasons, but. There's some spots where I know you like going, and I've, it's it's a public spot, and I just get frustrated. I think every time I go out there, I just want like like Walt saying, "I I want to punch some people," you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I just stay away from those like spots. You. Yeah. So well, you, what you're saying, it, Walt, is it would have been a little different if somebody just shot the turkey out in front of you. <laughs> say again i said uh so when we had our uh our turkey hunting podcast there with frank we were talking about public land um the j spot john's talking about i called in this bird i'd hunted him for three days and uh he was at about 80 yards out in front of my decoys coming on a string he'd been coming for 
about 400 yards and uh, a guy parked right next to my truck, walked down the two track between the two of us, snuck in the fence row and uh, shot at this bird on the way to my decoys while I was calling. Oh, you gotta be freaking kidding me. Nope. 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 I got, oh, and I was no. videoing that, it too. That would not have ended well. I got it all on video. I got him rolling back into the, in, into the fence row and, and everything. It was unbelievable. That's that's where somebody finds their truck up on blocks, dude. I'm telling you right now, that would not fly. That would oh, that that burns my blood right now. Just that boils my blood just thinking about it. You know, the other thing I left out that might also make make things make a little more sense as to why things are a little panicked here. Almost all of the good turkey hunting areas, not only can you not hunt past one o'clock, you can only hunt them Saturday, Sunday. Oh, okay. So yeah. So you you have a month, but essentially you've only got sixteen. Well, four times two, eight eight days that you can freaking hunt them. Birds. Are you are you an accountant, dude? Listen, <laughs> I'm gonna tell everybody who makes that joke. I am not good with math. If you hired me to be a mathematician, I would have to be fired. However, Excel is a beautiful thing, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, yeah, so no, I don't put the wrong numbers in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of Excel, yeah, John, just, yeah. I got over here, John's. Got saying, well, I got to make a new set of cables for you. <laughs> put the wrong numbers in. Yeah, itself. I saw. I saw that string was getting put together. Yeah, I got the string all built up, and then I was starting to lay up the uh, the cables, and I was trying to video it. And so I started putting the. I pulled up my program from BAP, and it's just an Excel spreadsheet, and so the cable is supposed to be thirty five and seven sixteen. So I ended up. I was sitting there talking, and I typed in 37 and 716. So needless to say, I built two cables. Well, I laid them up and stretched one, and then I went to do my final measurement. I'm like, 37? What? This thing's two inches too long. Son of a bitch. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I got a couple extra long cables here. but <laughs> At least I didn't get them all served up. Then I would have been really pissed. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. What? How did you? Uh, I don't mean to drive the podcast here. I apologize. But how did you learn how to make strings and cables? Well, a lot of uh, research. I just looked. I looked at a bunch of YouTube videos and like the BAP archery, or uh, it's it's Baker Baker Archery Products. He makes jigs and. And then they have some videos like on, on how they, they use their setup. And that's how I got, they have a spreadsheet. So like you just type in your string length and uh, cable length, and then it just spits it out and tells you like the two posts, three posts, four posts. And then I, I did a bunch huh. of reading on it too. And then we, like when we were at the ATA show, I talked to the guys from, uh, from uh, BCY and they're, you know, those guys, they're a great wealth of knowledge. I was telling them, I had no problems building strings for my Hoyt, but when it come to building strings for the Bowtex, the cams are so narrow that you have to, like the material I had originally, the BCYX material, it was just, you can't, you're supposed to stay at 24 strands. Well, it's too thick once, you know, you build a string, you serve it, it's just too wide for the cam track. So talking to those guys, he put you know, point me in the right direction, told me which product to use, which is the 452X, and then the power grip. And so that's what I'm using for uh, Adam's, the uh, Bowtech Carbonite stuff. Yeah, and that was all 
trial and error because you had a bow tech. It was not for building this string. You built right, yeah, it for I, your other bow tech. Yeah, I was building a, a string for my old bow tech. It was actually, had, you know, your brother, Adam's brother has now. And so I was just going through the, the process of just, just playing around out in the garage. I just bought the materials and I ended up, I had some steel laying around and I'd, I've done a lot of fabricating and stuff. So I just built my own jig. It's pretty uh, rudimentary, but it works. It's fun to yeah, play you with. know, I, I want to take tip my hat to you, Northern guys, because you know, around here, uh, our DIY projects are not near as ex- extensive as y'all. <laughs> y'all, I mean, I, I need a new string. I didn't. I, the thought of making my own string doesn't even pop into my mind. I'm just going to go to the shop and have him put a set of hog wires on there, and I'm done. But it <laughs> seems like y'all are. It's like okay, well, I want to do run and gun and. You type in run and gun. There's there's nine different guys from Michigan. They're out there prefabbing their own uh, lone wolf looking uh, sticks to go up the tree. I'm like, man, you got seven hundred dollars in them steps. You could have just. He's like, oh no, but I like these. I'm like, okay, hey man, kudos <laughs> to y'all. <laughs> yeah, it like I remember like before I started, I I remember going through like the Lancaster catalog and looking at all. I'm like, who the hell would buy? String material, it's like daunting thinking about the process of how to, you know, you know, figure it all out and serve it and do all that. Well, then I just, I'm looking into it and then I'm sure if you've heard any of the podcasts before, I'm a huge fan of Dudley, John Dudley with Knock On. And yeah, he was talking about, you know, Mike Slinkard, who uh, was one of the, the founders of Winner's Choice and string making and all that. And so, and he said... He was, Dudley was looking into building his own strings again or something. And so I'm like, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot, you know. It, of course, yeah, my first string probably cost me $300. <laughs> but but now I'm just, now I can just play with them, though. That's the thing. Like, I like to, I like to tinker with stuff. So with my Hoyt Double XL, I was, I didn't like the, the way my draw length was coming out, I was using, I had to use like some of the, the like the A notch. It goes A to whatever, D or A to C. Well, if you, if you, the farther back you are, like at the C notch, the longer the notch is, the better uh, valley or the valley that I like anyway. Well, that's ended up being a 33 inch draw length. Well, I'm like 31 and a half, you know, possibly a 32. But it was just, so what I ended up doing was just tinkering my string links. So I ended up building like three sets of strings and cables for my bow and then just shortened them up a little bit and played with them. So it ended up turning out to be cost effective for me to play around like that instead of order them special. So, and, and, and the experience just of doing it. So, yeah, so you got, you got, uh, I, I hope, I hope to get on your level. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say you got late into call turkeys and you know all that. I got John here. I just bring over a couple bows at a time. It turns out <laughs> and say, "Hey, <laughs> this is what I need." Well, yeah, and, and Leighton, it, it's I'm I have always wanted to be on your level, but because that that is the level of intimacy that I I want with my equipment. You know, not use cheesy and use the word intimacy there, but I feel like it really does apply to to the fact that you know you're building your own strings. I mean, you are acutely in tune with your equipment, and between college and and not having a place literally for the equipment. When I bought this house, I told my wife 
when I saw the garage, I was like, hey, you know that little corner right there? She goes, yeah. I said, that's going to be my bow shop right there. So I'm I'm glad to have uh, met your acquaintance because there's a good chance I'm going to be blowing you up uh, when things go awry when I start making my own strings. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you were talking about knowing your equipment. Uh, we talked about this a little bit uh, earlier before the podcast. And so you guys are both like on a level that I'm not. And you are actually giving me some crap earlier in the week that I still shoot a, a, a wrist release. <laughs> but you guys are both on yeah. the, the, the tension, the back tension releases, right? Absolutely. And so how did that come yeah. to be? I mean, because for me, again, being A, frugal, B, <laughs> practical, um, and then and then C, it's like, <laughs> well, I already, I already have it. So why, why switch it up? And you're like, oh, that's so nostalgic or so 1990s or, yeah, or that's whatever. Yeah, so 1990. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I mean, look, here's the deal, man. I'm going to just, I'm going to put it out there. You started a podcast, so I know you're not adverse to spending money. So uh, <laughs> that excuse doesn't fly from this point moving forward. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think I kind of came about it uh, the most unconventional of ways. Um I used to shoot lights out with a trigger release when I shot right-handed. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned how uh, I moved from right-handed to left-handed. I am right. I am left-eye dominant, and I had been taught my entire life that I needed to use my right hand for everything. And I, I remember when I was younger trying to explain to my daddy that, you know, the little tools where you make a circle and you look at something, you close your eyes. I'm like, no, it's going the other way. And I think, you know, I grew up in a day and age where you just didn't write left-handed. It doesn't matter that you, you wrote better that way. You need to find a way to use your right hand. Um, and I fought, I fought some problems with that because I also have an astigmatism in my right eye. It's, it's acute, but it's still there. So, you, you know, your mind is trying to, to look through your left eye, and you're trying to force it to look through your right eye. And then you're looking through your right eye, which already has an astigmatism, and you're losing, you know, to compensate, you got to close your left eye which means you, you, you lose uh, your body's ability to adjust for uh, the astigmatism. And my shooting was very good out in about 40 or so yards. I'm, I mean, I was very proficient at 40 yards. I'm not saying I'm Levi Morgan good, but I was very proficient at 40 yards. And I got bored, and I wanted to take it to the next level. But past 40 yards, I, I felt my eye's inability to focus on the sight picture. Right. So I went to my wife one day and I said, hey, look, I need to learn how to shoot left-handed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to relax my face. It's going to relax my mind. I can, I can quit worrying about my eyes and start focusing on the processes. Is my form in line? Am I, am I activating the muscles in my back? And where's my grip on the bow? I can focus on that and not have it be having to put so much conscious and subconscious thought into uh, overcoming poor eyesight through a non-dominant eye. Well man uh i'll be honest with you i made the switch to left-handed and the sight picture cleared up that component of it is phenomenal i mean that is the best decision i have ever made and from that aspect i want to tell anybody who's left eye dominant if you're fighting it right eye and you want to get better the easiest way to do that is to move to your dominant eye now i'm sure y'all might have a different opinion perhaps other people have different opinions that is my humble opinion it has made my my shooting more enjoyable and more relaxed and more natural now, the downside to that, I have spent 28 years on this earth perfecting how to use the finite muscles in my, in my right hand and the right side of my body. My left hand, 
uh, lacks some of that motor skills, that finite motor skills that come with subconsciously or not having to actively think about perhaps squeezing the trigger. And one of the problems that I found having gone left-handed is that I was having to focus maybe a little too much on squeezing that trigger and I, and then I'd, I'd forget to be f- polishing the aim, holding through, making sure that I'm not uh, uh, off the off the pin. So what happened was I developed a horrific case of target panic and this year alone I have lost nine arrows. Now, I will say this about losing those nine arrows. Part of that is just because I was too stubborn to admit that target panic was not something I could push my way through. And I kind of didn't admit that I had the problem and I blamed all kinds of equipment. And I do, I mentioned this earlier, I do need to shorten my draw length a touch. This bow is actually drawing a little bit longer than 28 inches, uh, which is uh, causing a little bit of instability in my back. I'm a little too exposed and and, uh, open in my chest already, Uh, but I'm going to get that fixed here shortly. So what I found was I have no problem pulling back back tension. But my thumb, I was real conscious, real self-conscious as to where my thumb laid on, um, actually I skipped a step. So I went from a, re- a wrist release to a Stan SX3. Um, and that Stan SX3 is a thumb activated and I was shooting at back tension. It was working pretty good, but I still never found a good comfortable spot on my left thumb. And again, I lost nine arrows and I'm sitting here going, okay, hi, my name's Walter and I suffer from target panic. And I started evaluating this on a very open and honest fashion. And I'm watching one of Dudley's freaking videos, man. And he showed, and and I've seen this video like six dozen times and it's the silverback. I'm like, holy crap. I don't have any problem triggering my back muscles. What I have a problem with is confidence that my thumb is going to do what it needs to. So I took that Stan SX3, I put it up for trade and I'm now currently shooting a Stan element. And I can honestly tell you right now, not having to worry about that trigger has changed my mental psyche immensely. I've only had it about a week. I may have only shot it 50 times, but I'm working through the process of of getting the tension just right on it. But, oh my Jesus, dude, I wish somebody would have slapped me on the forehead 10 years ago and said, hey, use a tension style release. Yeah, those, absolutely. I I end up doing the same thing. I've always shot uh, without any you know, target panic and with my buddy Jason, you know, he was, he's suffered from it. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Target panic? You know, I'll just, you'll be fine. You know, don't think about it. Well, then all of a sudden this year at, during the, uh, our, uh, indoor league, I fell apart. And this was with my, I'm shooting the Carter wise choice, which is the thumb activated, but I usually shoot it. I shoot it as a back tension, like what you're saying, but I, I was catching myself just punching the thumb. And so yeah. I also have the silver back. And so I uh, went back to that and ended up, I shot my best score basically with that, with the silver back, which is hard to do, you know, to consistently shoot around with a full back tension without working up to it. It's definitely, right. it's definitely tough, but I ended up shooting like our score scoring uh, platform is, 15 10 4 2 on our small game league and with my regular release i was shooting i actually missed the target a duck target at seven yards that's how bad i had it (laughs) so wow and so then when i went to my silverback i ended up shooting it wasn't you know i wasn't just you know 
pin and bullseyes, but I never shot less than a 10. So it was all 10s and 15s. Right. And then, but yeah, the back tension. You did sail a couple arrows. Oh, in the beginning, yeah. Yeah. Playing with the back tension when I, I have I actually put one over the back of the backstop with that. But <laughs> I've done it too. I've done it too several times. This this is indoor though, so yeah. there's there's a, still a backstop. There's a there's a banner up there and everything. Oh yeah, the one night I was <laughs> the one night the one night I was this was before I was working on my bow, and I I probably put at least 150 arrows through it, and I was tuning it and. I can't remember what oh i was getting ready to head back up oh it was after i i blew my bow up so then i had to go and make a new string and set of cables for it right before we we're heading up north so i was putting it all back together and i was shooting when i shouldn't say this over the the, uh, the podcast hopefully none of the club members are listening but <laughs> i uh, i was just getting down to the end and i'd been switching back and forth between my my wise choice and my silverback and I'd moved over, and this is late at night. We have we have a key card, so we can go to the club at any time. So anyway, I'm the only one in there, and I walk back by the bathroom, so trying to get my 50 yard pin down, and I draw back, and I don't know if I was thinking I had I had I misjudged the release or whatever, but I end up either pulling the trigger or letting off the safety, and I end up sending one through. <laughs> there's a big banner that says no broadheads and i put it right through the n in the no <laughs> and uh which is right behind it is a big metal uh like deflector because there's lights behind it and so it went through two pieces of that metal deflector and then hit the light bracket it didn't break the light but it was a it was a pretty funny moment but now it's out now it's out there so we, everyone, uh, at the club, I own the end, so. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't John. John witnessed that happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and he just, he's making, he's making his guest feel better for the fact that he sucks right now at archery. And that's, that's all that is. <laughs> but yeah, target panic's a real thing. And, you know, like you're saying, Dudley's video, there's, you know, the videos out there to, to help with it. But that's oh, yeah. I work Yeah, and I, I think, I think it's also one of those things that, I mean, I'm no Dudley here, uh, but by any means of the stretch, uh, by any means of the imagination, I'm I'm not qualified to put myself in that realm. But having had target panic, I feel like I can talk about my experience with with this. And I think anybody who only goes to one source and looks at one way to solve target panic, they're they're selling themselves short because target panic occurs for each person for for specific reasons. Exactly. You know, like you've got awesome people out there who are mechanics coach like John Dudley. And then you've got mental coaches like Joel Turner. I think that's his name, right? Joel Turner. Um, yeah, I'm he, not familiar. He with goes him. into the su- what? Hold hey. on, I'm pretty sure that's his name. Yeah. Well, you um, you're, you're saying mental coaches. I'm pretty mentally strong here, so I'm. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, no, there's there's a there's a a fella named uh, Joel Turner, and uh, he he goes into the psyche of as like why. You, why you develop the flinch, like why your body is subconsciously protecting you from the explosive action of the bow. Um, you know, for me, it's a combination of, 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 a, of a couple different things. And I, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've settled into this uh, pattern of aiming, like I can't get the pin to go on the target. 
Exactly. I, 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 I'm, I'm like sitting just below it about six inches. So I ended up, you know, like originally compensating for that by sighting the bow in six inches low. Um, and, and before I bought this house, man, I, I was in a townhouse and behind us is a row of townhouses about a hundred yards away. And I'm shooting in the backyard and I only shot when the people aren't there in their backyard, you know, cause I'm aiming a bow and nobody freak out and send me hate mail saying, you know, oh, you should have shoot it in such a close proximity, but I'm a damn good archer. I'm very careful. Just putting that out there. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm still aiming low and I'm hitting even lower and I'm getting really mad. And I've got, I've just got the stand SX three and I knock one of these black Eagle arrows, dude. And I start to draw back and my thumb, I'm about halfway through my draw and my thumb hit bumped the side of the trigger. And if anybody has a set, a stand SX three, it will go off. If you apply pressure to the side of the trigger, you don't have to pull it back. It it's, it's really weird. I'm drawing back. I'm up above the target. I'm like, I'm not going to miss this time. And I'm like, I'm swinging up through the target. And as I'm swinging up through the target to, to line it up, I bump the trigger and dude, I sent that black Eagle arrow into oblivion. I have to this day, no idea where it went. I don't know what townhouse it hit. <laughs> I walked, I walked my do- my dog over there all over the place, trying to find that damned thing. And just in like a nonchalant fashion, like I'm checking windshields and windows like am i gonna find my arrow in the back of somebody's car or something you know never found the damn thing and it was like at that point i was like okay i've got a freaking problem here (laughs) this this is not good yeah that's exactly what i had was i i just couldn't hold up couldn't pull up on it and just get that flinch where you just start you're like pull up and punch it yeah but yeah the back and you just hammer it man you feel like you feel your body jerk too right yeah oh yeah Exactly. Oh God, it's 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 horrifying, man. You're not in control of your own body. Yeah, just get that anxiety feel. Well, I was anyway. I was even. Yeah. I was laughing. I'm like, I'm gonna take one of my wife's Xanax before I go shoot. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. Yeah, I, I don't have. Um, I, don't, I guess I don't. I don't have any aspirations to shoot a perfect ground, or I don't have any. Like, I, I don't have anything to be panicked about. But I can tell you this. And it, it it doesn't happen, it it doesn't happen like that for me, but for me, it's like I can shoot spots all day. Shooting animals is like how you said, like your first, you know, ideation of bow hunting, like before you switched over to your compound or whatever. It's like I've been out of practice, I guess. I, I not shooting my bow. It's like just killing things, and it's like for the longest time I waited and I was like, well, I'm not going to shoot this one. I'm going to wait for this year or that. And, you know, Frank told me like, you need to get a couple under your belt. And then for a while there, it was just like clockwork. It was like, it was like my job was killing deer. It was like, you know, there it is. Okay. Mechanics. Here you go. Uh Nothing. And then, you know, go to college, come back from college. And then it's like, I'm just missing deer left and right. Oh, it's, it's just, having the animal and then last year with the turkey i mean i can't even believe that it was it was 17 yards right there right at the decoy chip <laughs> shot and right over its back i just you know i thought you punched the trigger on accident or bumped it or something I'm like what well yeah because that 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 was the the get to know your cameraman moment because i didn't say hey are you on him or anything like that it was just like he came he was right in front of the decoy so I shot. John's eyes were as big as. Yeah, thanks for that picture you posted. Yeah. Of me. 
But for me, like shooting spots, I don't, I don't have that. And I don't have that like punch the trigger thing. I just think I forget all the steps. Like when, when my adrenaline gets going, it's like, Oh, right. I, I get that for sure. Targets. Uh, I don't know, but maybe that comes along with these fancy smancy, you know, new age fangled releases you guys are shooting. No, I, mine was a, <laughs> mine was, I was, uh, well, how to put it. I, I caused it myself this year. Last year I shot a ton and I was working on my bow all the time. So I, you know, shot a lot, worked on a lot. So I knew where I was at. This year was completely different. I had a lot of stuff going on. So I was only shooting once a week. And then when you leave off on a bad note, then you come in and it was just like compound on each other. And so you start thinking. And you know, last year too, I ended up shooting I ended up having the high score, the aggregate score for the league on that, you know, on our small game night. So I had the highest, highest score coming in to this year. And it was like, oh, I got, I got, I can't, I don't want to lose it, you know, and I want to shoot a perfect score. I, I fell apart. You, you, you mentioned kind of losing control in the moment and, and if the release might have some of the, the release isn't going to stop you with that, man. That that's something that you just have to like. One day, a deer is going to come in, and you're going to have like this mental click, and you're going to be like, "I'm going to control these. Like, I'm going to set my feet. I'm going to set my anchors. I'm going to take this shot, and it's going to be a good shot." You know, I mean, that's just something that just kind of has to happen. I mean, the release isn't going to change that because what Joel Turner talks about this. You have like these closed loop and these open loop cycles, and when that adrenaline punches uh, your your blood flow, dude. You, you start to revert to like uh, what would be described as like instinctual actions, like that muscle memory, but you're not consciously, you know, going through the steps. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm above it. I've killed a shit ton of deer and it wasn't until two years ago that I had that moment. You know, it's just. Well, and, and that's the thing is like I, I, I've had that that moment. I mean, it has it has clicked and I know what it feels like. But it's like I've, I guess I've I've I don't think like it's like struggled with it. I just think it's it's like I'm inside my own head, and that's like that's the only thing I can equate like the target panic thing sure. to is because like it's like seriously by the end of this year, what's been good is been filming, you know, with like that second angle is like I can see like my mechanics uh-huh. again. So it's like I mean I had two chip shot misses this year. And, uh, it, it was like, okay, the first one, I, I just rushed it. The second one, yeah, I brought my face to the bow instead of bringing the bow in. And it was, it was cold and I had bigger clothes on, but that's why you need to practice with all that stuff on. Mm-hmm. But that, that was, that was what happened is, you know, I drew back and, and you were talking about, you know, 70 pounds and, and not being able to do that. I had my brother-in-law, Chris, that we talked about earlier filming for me and he was in a different tree. And I drew from the hip at 60 pounds, you know, and that's, that's why I was shooting 60 pounds is I, I drew it from my waist because the deer were right there. And then Uh I just, I slowly brought it up and then rather getting, getting my normal stance and all that, I brought the bow to me so I didn't have to, to move. You can see my head's all tilted and, and everything like that, but that, that's where I, that's where I struggle. Yeah, I think I think that's maybe due though to the process. You know, it 
because what you're doing is 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 if you're aware of what if you're aware of the moment and you've had that moment, it's not something that you that you like have that moment and then never struggle with it again. I mean, like I'm literally talking to myself when a deer walks in. Uh, I I remember the moment that it first happened. I remember catching myself talking like I, I had my first buck come in at one point in time and I'm like it's a buck it's a buck okay it's a buck draw back get your turn your turn your turn your waist draw back slow anchor point behind the jaw anchor point on the lip anchor point on the nose okay line up the, and I just remember going through that process and I think that's the only way you can get through it John you're probably more qualified to talk to the up to this aspect than I am but I think it's one of those things where you have to build trust in the process and then a reliance on the process and then choose to remain in that process when 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 that adrenaline hits there it, it's it's not it's not like you you just hit this level of it never it never strikes you again or you don't have to worry about it if i made it sound that way i apologize cuz it's not it's not like this nirvana that you find one day and you're like oh okay i can control myself under adrenaline flow yeah definitely got to work through it well and it's it's weird though because i felt like you know, when I, sh- I said it before, but when I shot that big buck, you know, my dad told the story of one of the guys that he hunted with, you know, put a, put an arrow right through, um, a deer's antlers. Cause that's all he was looking at. And so when that deer came in, it was so big. I was like, just don't look at his antlers. Like, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is, this is when you have to draw and then just make a good shot. And I guess at that point I was talking to myself saying, make a good shot, make a good shot. And then you know, the struggles I had this year, I mean, I guess even last year on that Turkey, it was simply, you know, one was a Jake last year. And then this year it was just two does. So it, it was like, I wasn't even like concerned about it. Like it wasn't, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it's going to happen. I was like really nonchalant about it. And I think that that's, that's probably what's where the issue is. Right. So you weren't, you weren't mentally. Yeah checking off your list you were just yep. going through the motion yeah 12 yards right there yeah <laughs> yeah and those are the <laughs> easiest ones to do it too because they're so close you just write off a lot of the principles you're like there's no way i'm gonna miss this shot at 10 feet you know yeah so we you know going through all of that um you're you know we talked about a, a lot of really good stuff but you being the uh chase and tails podcast guy Let's hear one of your bow hunting stories, kind of to, to to close this out. I know you do the the same thing on 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 yours, uh, but like a memorable bow hunt that doesn't necessarily need to be successful. Um, some 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 hunt that's a memorable hunt for you, where maybe you learn something, either good or bad. Yeah. Okay. Um. Boy, I wasn't expecting that, and that's funny because that's my thing. Um. Okay. So. All right, I've got the one I'm going to share, and I haven't shared it in in since I think like episode two or three of our podcast. So this is uh, pretty pretty unfamiliar to to all of our, all listeners here. But uh, I'm going to tell you all the story about in 2000. Um, I think it was 2008. I was 18 years old, and this is when I shot my first buck with the bow. So this is. Um, four years post go, uh, picking up the bow. Um, actually I've got the number wrong. It was 2010. I apologize. Cause I was still dating a certain woman. Um, it was 2010, four years post bow, bow only. And my father, uh, a week before 
deer season, maybe two weeks before deer season, was hanging stands and he was impatient. And uh, we had bought this new thing that was fancy on TV and all the cool guys were using it called a lock-on tree stand. And uh, my father was a little unfamiliar as to how to hang them. And uh, the hunter safety system was something that uh, I don't think it really gained popularity yet. It wasn't something that was just kind of a, a part of the hunting culture, right? Where you... Uh, you just don't go in the tree without your trees, without your safety harness. Um, well, my father got impatient. I was going to get off work and I was going to help him hang some of these, uh, like 40 pound gorilla fricking steel with like arm bar hang ons that we had bought from Bass Pro Shops. And, uh, he got impatient, climbed up the tree. And, and again, I mentioned Southeast Georgia during bow season, we're looking at 90 degree weather, right? Well, the inevitable struck, he wasn't hooked into the tree and he fell and damaged himself very badly. Um, the good news for the story is that's the worst part of, of, of this. It all goes up from here. And this is, uh, you know, only a couple days from, from the beginning of deer season. And I had found for the first time ever a food source that field and stream and outdoor life had talked about. It was persimmons. I had found persimmon trees. It, it was so weird that I found it. I was in this swamp and I was elated because I knew that in, any direction, no matter how far you looked, you would not have found another persimmon tree. And I, and here I found five of these things, right? So all summer long, I've got tree stand, I got trail cameras in this area. I've got big bucks moving through all the time. I've got young bucks, does. I mean, this place is just, they are checking this tree every day, looking for fallen fruit because they just, because they know that they're, they're following, they're falling in, in some order. (laughs) So, I hung this stand in this sweet gum that was covered up in vines. I'm talking like 10 inches deep in greenbrier vines, right? And I cut with a hatchet. I cut out a square for me to hang this lock on and for me to put this these these screw and steps into the tree. Well, I'm at the hospital with my dad and and he's kind of banged up pretty bad and uh mom is you know like you're all never going hunting again and my granny's like oh you're never going hunting again this is ridiculous and like i'm all kinds of upset about it feeling kind of 10 different ways and uh my dad comes comes to at one point and says hey man tomorrow's the opener i was like yeah it is he goes so you're gonna be hunting right and i was like no nah, i'm not i'm not going i think mom and, and granny would skin me alive if 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 uh nine days after you've fallen out of the stand or whatever it was i'm back up in a tree stand and he laughed and he goes, since when have you ever listened to anybody in this damn family? And I and I started laughing. I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to go, you know. And I went that that, after, that morning. Uh, it rained really hard unexpectedly. So I couldn't get back in there. And it rained a lot and very, very hard. In fact, it was uh, very wet trying to get back in there. I'm slocking through water, knee deep. Uh, this swamp was just particularly riddled with with water moccasins and i can't stand a water moccasin it's the only the only snake that i go out of my way to kill if i if i cross paths with it um in fact two weeks later i had one of those moccasins chase me to my tree stand and i know this because i heard him slithering behind me after i stepped past him and when i climbed down out of the tree stand he was coiled up at the bottom of my tree stand but anyways i i walk back in there it's hot it's humid i'm drenched in sweat and i climb up in the tree and mom mom calls me and i hit ignore and mom calls me again and i hit ignore a second time i'm like ah if she calls the third time i'll have to answer this damn phone i'm I'm not gonna get away with this sure enough she calls the third time and i pick up the phone and i say hey mom i'm in the tree stand do what 
you have got to be kidding. I just hung up the phone. I was like, if I have to bear with it, you know, deal with this, um, this is not going to, you know, go well. Well, so I climb, I climb up in the, I'm, I'm up in the tree. I'm sitting there thinking, God, you know, I've made a mistake. I've done angered mom, which is, you know, not a good thing. I've angered granny. I get text messages from granny who was, you know, not happy that I'm up there. And about the time I'm thinking, okay, I need to climb down to this tree stand and be a little more sensitive to my family's feelings. Off to my left, I hear a snort. I'm like, what in the world? That can't be a deer, man. That that can't be a deer. And sure enough, I look over there and a truck rides down the road and busts two deer out of out of this trail that, that led to this pursuit. And I don't know why I thought this would work, but I pulled out my grunt tube and I just grunted three times. And in and, and no particular fashion, nothing fancy. And those deer just, just keep going off. And off to the corner of my eye, now, you know, I mentioned these transition zones. I'm hunting on the on the on the perimeter of a of a sweet gum tupelo swamp and, and pines. And I've got the, 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 the swamp kind of wraps behind me uh, over my left shoulder and I can't quite see back behind me, but it, it's where deer come through. And I, I look over and I catch movement coming from that direction. And lo and behold, this deer comes blowing right down the ridge, this little transition ridge comes right out at 10 yards. Now at this point I went straight into blackout mode and I draw back. I knew I've got one spot. I draw back. It's at 15 yards. This deer comes out. I do a freaking Lee Lacosse merit. That thing stops, I drilled it, and it takes off. And I'll never forget trying to get my freaking heart to calm down a little bit so I could hear this damn thing run through the woods. And I hear it, crash, 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 and then silence. I'm like, what the hell? And I'm looking at my arrow, and I'm shooting an eastern axis at the time, so I know i got to pass through. It's sitting there stuck, and there's blood dripping off the fletchings. I'm that close to the freaking arrow. So I climb down out of the tree stand after about an hour of shaking there, and... I go down and look at the at the blood, and it's dark, or I'm sorry, it's bright red blood. I'm talking just bright, clean blood, and I'm thinking, okay, heart. It's not dark. It can't be the liver. It's not foamy. It can't be the lungs. I got a heart shot. I double back. I try to follow follow the blood trail. There's no blood trail. I'm talking literally. If you took your two two fingers, you dipped it in a glass of water, and flicked it onto the ground, you would have had that much blood to go by. I don't know. I couldn't figure out, at least at the time why this deer wasn't bleeding so i did the smart thing and i backed out and i called my uncle fred and i said hey man i need help tracking this deer and this joker brings out these two massive ass spotlights like one million candle power spotlights he he says walter don't you worry now we're gonna find this deer because we're gonna light this whole this whole woods up till we can see we we can see anything and everything don't you worry <laughs> and we start crawling down there on our hands and knees and we'll find like a drop of blood on a leaf and we find another drop of blood and, and we starting to see this path that he took. So I knew my memory as my, as my memory's coming back to me, I'm thinking, okay, surely I remember this deer running this direction. Sure enough, the blood starts going in that direction. Well, this trail comes to a T and another trail running north to south cuts it off. And we start going to the right on this trail because in front of you is this big blowdown. I'm talking this massive damn blowdown. So the deer had to go right, or it had to go left, surely. So we go to the right, no blood. We go to the left, no blood. We back up, back and forth, back and forth. And then finally we stand in the middle of the crossroads on that T, where the last place we found blood, and there's a pool of blood standing right there. And I'm thinking, okay, we know the deer came this far, and he's bleeding like a stuck pig at this point. Why on earth can't we find this deer? 
And my, my Uncle Fred, he throws his hands up in the air and goes, I, I can't believe this. And as he throws his hand up in the air, the spotlight kind of arced up into the air and then came down in a sharp fashion. And I saw a flash of white in that damn blowdown. And I said, Uncle Fred, look right there. And he hits it with both spotlights. And sure enough, that deer was so dead that it tore off down that trail, must have lost its eyesight, must have lost focus, something as he was losing blood pressure, and blew straight into that blowdown and flung himself, I'm talking way back in this blowdown. I don't know how he got as far back in there as he did. And I say he at this point because I realized that the deer that I had not identified as a buck or a doe has got a six-point rack sitting on top of his head, a little basket rack. So we pull that joker out, man, and I had blown right through its 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 uh, shoulder blade on it on the right side and come out through the bottom chest in front of the leg. And the only thing we can figure to this date is that as he ran, that 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 left leg was was rubbing back and forth across that that exit wound, keeping any blood from leaving. And because I went through the shoulder blade, all that muscle and the bone kind of blocked off that hole. And it wasn't until he got all the way to the crossroad that he, that he started to actually shed some blood for us to find direct heart shot problem solved drug that deer out and i'll never forget to this day man the, only, the the most memorable part of that hunt was calling my dad and hearing him on the phone just so elated you know missing deer season having done it to himself because he had a safety system at home and for his son to you know after many years of uh you know got his first buck and the damn thing only went 25 yards it was incredible um, it was just, I'll never forget that, you know, the highs and the lows of the two weeks before. And then to have, you know, this was that cusp that I told y'all where I started to kill a bunch of deer, that that was that moment where I, I kind of walked into my own as a deer hunter. So it was a memorable time for sure. Yeah. And your dad had just been just so happy, you know, for, for you. Cause he said, you know, you better get out there, you know, and that's that mentoring thing, kind of like circling back saying, you know, you can, you, you can do everything, but, but kill it for you, but you can't kill it if you're not in the woods, you know, so you, you gotta be out there. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, no. And, um, I, I think to this day he would have been upset had I not gone. And I think, you know, obviously had I not gone, it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have known about it, but I, I look at that moment and I'm thinking, man, because honestly, the person that needed it more than anybody was my dad. You know, he needed some degree of normalcy. He needed to know that his mistake hadn't cost the family, you know, everything. You know, he was fine. He made it through. He had a real healthy life afterwards. But, you know, in that moment, in bed, in excruciating pain, knowing that uh, you're you're at least one one fall and winter uh, removed from the woods for his son to find that success, man. I, I I snuck the damn head into the hospital so he could see it. I put it in a backpack <laughs> and about two trash bags. <laughs> and, and I don't know how many health codes I probably violated, but I'll be damned if my dad wasn't going to see that deer. <laughs> well, that's so, a good one. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, man. As far as uh, chasing tails, that's a really great, uh, really great story. But uh, yeah, you know, we don't. We don't need to keep you too much longer here. Uh, we would just really appreciate you coming on here and um, definitely hope to, to do this again. Um, we definitely want to get down there. I know John John wants to get get Layton's number just so we can go down there and saltwater fish. Oh, man. it's I was just down there what, month last month, went down to the Keys and did some fishing. But fishing, uh, hog hunting, turkey hunting, anything. 
And man, we Hold can put, we can put you out some turkeys up here. You were in the great state of Florida, and and you didn't hit me up. Well, I was down in uh, we were down in Marathon Key. We just had a little uh, mini vacation, right, my man. wife and I. Uh, I'll give you a pass. That's about a fourteen-hour drive. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, man, if you ever need anything yeah, from no, us, we'll, and you we'll, want to, we'll definitely have you. You want to come up here? You want to come up here and do some uh, some turkey hunting, some. Uh, Fishing, anything. Fishing, whitetail hunting. I've got, uh, we got a 240-acre uh, deer camp up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And every time I send you pictures of snow, you think that's wonderful. Well, I'll show you wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, here's the deal, Bubba. I, I, I'll say this to you. I, we need to get together. We need to do, do, do some more podcasting for sure, as well as some hunting. But I will do everything in my power to get you on a, on a saltwater boat if you will help me fulfill my lifelong dream, which is to track a deer in the snow. I want to track that bright red blood. I see photos of, the, of you spoiled jokers up there that get to kill deer sometimes in the snow. And, and it just it mesmerizes me because I have never, that's a lie, I've hunted one time in the snow. It was snowing, but it, it, I've never had the fortune of 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 wearing a full layered system or any of that good jazz man and and i'm a scotsman at heart i've got a big red bushy beard and, and I, I sweat standing still in 60 degree weather so i would love to uh exchange a fishing trip for a hunting trip up there dude well we can certainly make that happen man but we don't want to keep you too much longer so uh like I say we really appreciate it and uh anything we can do for you reach out but uh i think that's pretty much all we got for tonight um so thanks for being on here and uh everybody will catch you next time so that's another episode of the bowhunter chronicles podcast in the books so take it easy Sit down.